2: You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Colombia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon Jungle, Colombia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering, here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars, and this is episode 403 of the Colombia Calling podcast, uh, I apologize in advance for my voice. It's a bit croaky. I've been on antibiotics for the last few days due to a throat infection yeah, you know, brought back from nursery school by my youngest son. Of course, they spend their times in these viral soups <laughs> that are uh, nursery school, and of course, my older one at uh, at primary school. But so be it. This is the way it is. Thank you again to those of you who have signed up on patreon.com at patreon.com forward slash Columbia calling where you can make contributions uh, to the Columbia calling podcast and ensure that we, you know, we're economically viable to continue Making the podcast. That's myself and Emily Hart on news. We've also set up another page where you can make one off donations. So, therefore, you don't have to do the Patreon thing. It's kind of like um, buymeacoffee.com, the American one, but this one's called Coffee, but it's ko fi.com. So, it's ko fi.com, Columbia Calling. And you can make one time donations for as little as $5. Uh, you know, just just you know throw a little something at us to help us out. Uh this week's podcast is is quite special to me because part of the idea of the Columbia Calling Podcast was always to reveal unknown or lesser known stories about Columbia. And that's we've really excelled in this one today because through finding a guy on Twitter who put a thread out about these sort of revolutionary missionaries in the Sierra Nevada, so up near the Caribbean coast. Well, we got to talking, it's Juan Sebastian, and uh, we got to talking about a documentary that this team, a a young team, uh, have put together, and they're in post-production right now. And it's a documentary called Las Señoritas, and it details the female single missionaries largely from Medellin, who head up into the Sierra Nevada with the Arawako people or the Kogi people. And it's about—it's not about trying to pull the poor indigenous person out of poverty and out of ignorance, as you would find so much in, in other stories of missionaries or exactly like the Capuchin missionaries who try to convert people up there in the Sierra Nevada. This is about going up there and finding god within the actual beliefs and cultures of the existing people up there so from the catholic church this is incredibly revolutionary and you know people don't know about this organization this i guess i, I wouldn't i don't even know what to call it but it's it's USEMI Usemi that's how we will refer to it and we're going to talk to Daniela uh, Daniela Rocha and Daniel Velasquez who are part of the team and they'll be telling us about their experiences filming in the Sierra Nevada what this documentary means and of course how long this project took place and of course I think it was the 60s the 1960s 1970s and 1980s and these women who went up there had a quite a you know a profound impact not only on themselves but also on the area in which they were in, in which they were working. But you know, you, you, you approach this with a certain degree of skepticism, because, of course, um, the word missionary doesn't, you know, doesn't really engender uh, hugely positive connotations today. But hearing about this documentary and what these, uh, these guys have put together, changes one's outlook. And it's very much an anthropological study, and very much it's it's not from an outsider's view. I think that the Mamos and the Kogi people are very much the centerpiece of this alongside the Usemi missionaries. So I hope I've explained it a little bit, but at the same time, you're going to have to listen to understand. And I will be posting, of course, on our Facebook page and on Twitter, the the links to their teaser, uh, teaser clip and indeed... Uh, where you can where you can contribute to help uh, this uh, team get las señoritas through post-production this next year so that's me i'm going to give you uh pass you over to emily hart now with the news and then we'll be back in segment three with las señoritas well the documentary and two members of the team talking to us about their experiences and what this means thank you again for listening and bye-bye
1: I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories from Colombia for the week of November 22nd, 2021. A scandal of international scope for Colombia's police force this week, as policemen were caught in costume as Nazis, with uniforms, swastikas, and a replica Luftwaffe plane. One officer was even in costume as Adolf Hitler. Held at a police school in Toulouse, in Valle de Cauca, the event was supposedly part of Internationalisation Week. The scandal broke as the Academy themselves posted photos on social media. The German and Israeli embassies in Bogota expressed total rejection of the event, while the US ambassador branded it outrageous and offensive to all victims of the Nazi regime. President Ivan Duque condemned the event, and the Public Prosecutor's Office has now opened a preliminary inquiry into the use of Nazi symbols. The president has announced that Colombia's economy is on track to grow more than 9% this year. The government statistics agency said this week the economy expanded 13% in the third quarter compared to the same period last year. Meanwhile, the World Bank is to loan five hundred million U.S. dollars to Colombia to support social and economic integration of Venezuelan migrants into the country. It's the first ever loan given by the World Bank exclusively focused on cross-border migration. The loan will finance the regularisation of 1.7 million Venezuelans currently under temporary protection status and the integration of more than 700,000 people into the social security system, as well as the improvement of housing conditions and coronavirus vaccinations for more than a million Venezuelans. And reproductive rights have been waylaid again in Colombia. This week, the Constitutional Court was supposed to begin discussing the decriminalisation of abortion – with a deadline to decide on Friday. But the process has been delayed by a legal challenge over one of the judges' competence to take part in the decision. Justice Alejandro Linares gave an interview in Semana magazine, in which he referred in passing to the abortion debate. Days later, a claim was lodged of his impediment to partake, due to having supposedly revealed his vote. It was, however, already known that Linares was in favour of decriminalisation from his voting history. In his written statement, he maintains that there is no reason to remove him because he did not express his opinion to the magazine. But, instead of debating the issue itself, the court debated and voted on the impediment, and the vote was tied. This means a further delay as another judge will now have to decide. If Linares is declared unable to rule on the case, a new judge will be appointed, causing more delays. Never before has Colombia been so close to making reproductive rights a reality. Though currently every year 400 women are criminalised for having an abortion, the huge majority of those prosecutions are of women in rural areas. New figures show that 40 members of the trans community have died this year in violent acts related to murders and deaths resulting from human rights violations. Compared to 2020, this year has seen a 25% increase in rights violations and homicides. Colombia is thus the second most dangerous country for trans people in South America, after Brazil, according to the Transaction and Support Group Foundation. Former heads of the Cali cartel, the rodriguez Oroquela brothers, have agreed to testify at the Truth Commission. They're expected to speak about their claims that they financed the political campaigns of two former presidents, Andrés Pastrana and Ernest Samper, both with full knowledge. Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez-Orejuela have been in prison in the USA for more than 15 years, having been extradited and convicted of drug trafficking there, now serving sentences of 30 years. Following a slight climb, coronavirus cases in Colombia have levelled out again, now at around 2,500 new daily cases. Nearly 70% of the country have now had one dose of vaccine, 46% are fully vaccinated. Those were your top stories from Colombia for the week. I'll be back next Monday.
2: And we're back. This is episode 403 of the Colombia Court podcast. I'm Richard McColl here in Bogota, Colombia. My very able apologies to all of you for my voice. I've got a little bit of a frog in my throat, but uh, you can comment on that later. This episode is quite special because it came about... Because I saw like a 40 something long Twitter thread, and it was to deal, it dealt with uh, a documentary, and it dealt with the Sierra Nevada, you know, up beyond Santa Marta, and of course the indigenous peoples that are there located. So I got in touch with the guy, uh, Juan Sebastian, who put this together, and we started talking. And it's, well, yes, he and a team have been putting together this documentary, and well, they're coming to the end of, the, I guess, the documentary now, making it. And so we've got this opportunity today to speak to Daniela Rocha, who's a producer, originally a psychologist, but she's the producer of the documentary. And we've got Daniel Velazquez, who is an editor, and he's also a filmmaker, having studied here in Bogota and in uh, Havana, Cuba. So we're going to discuss a little bit about this documentary because it comes in From a different angle, really, uh, when we talk about filming in the Sierra Nevada mountains behind Santa Marta and, of course, the importance of a story surrounding religion, the indigenous people, uh, their findings, what it was like to film up there and so on. But I'm going to stop talking and say, Daniel and Daniela, welcome on the Columbia Calling Podcast.
3: Thank you very much, uh, Richard. Hello, everyone that's listening. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak about our documentary and about this project that is very exciting for us.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Daniela. Thank you, Richard, for this opportunity too. I think that um, these opportunities are one in a million. (laughs) Like uh, Being able to talk about... uh, little project that is going to be really big, and we didn't uh, understand how this happened.
2: <laughs> well, that's, that's a really nice way of starting. Uh, well, first of all, the flattery is, is wonderful. It's, it, this is certainly not one in a million. I'm just a guy with a microphone here. But this documentary, Las Señoritas, obviously, the two of you have been, and with a big team, have been living and breathing this documentary Perhaps, I don't know, which one of you would like to start and give us, uh, uh, you know, a summary of of what the documentary is about?
3: Um, Well, uh, this documentary film, it's about uh, the history about Las Señoritas. Uh, There were a group of uh, women and men, but mostly women, that lived in the Sierra Nevada, Santa Marta, uh, in the 60s and the 70s and uh, the early 80s they were working uh for the church uh, then but um they were they were creating new forms of of teaching the the indigenous uh the Arhuaco people to maintain their like their culture and not being like uh somehow uh, how can I say, like, taking like Catholicism and Christianism over their culture, but uh, make, making them learn their own culture as well. Uh, this group of people is called USEMI, Unión de Segulares Misioneras. And this documentary, it's really interesting in the uh, context of Colombia because you know, Colombia has had a lot of violence in history. A lot of black and white thoughts. It's like this, or it's like that. And these sort of stories, uh, like let us let us know about all these really gray shades of things that are between all the political uh things that are, that are going on in Colombia around the time and. It, that makes it really important nowadays because we're living in a society that's quite divided between uh, left-winged or, right- or right-winged uh, political thinkings. Um, we have been working in this project around like more than a year and a half, I think. Um, we're working. We're 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 working with other two. Um, guys, uh, Juan Sebastián Zapata and Santiago Zayn, they are both co-directing this project Uh, they were actually the ones that went to the Sierra Nevada and they filmed there I have not been there but uh, they have related all their stories and they have talked to us a lot about their experience. I think Daniela was there too uh, at some point I'm not really the guy to talk about how was the process filming there, but I can share some of the experience that they have told me and uh, uh, a lot of points of view that are, like, around the, the documentary, uh, in Bidiness, uh these Las Señoritas, and also uh, different parts of the story that have been taking a point of view in, in the story. So, uh, yeah. I'm-
2: this I mean this is is this story, this USAMI, the, 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 the organization that's up there. This is a, from the United States?
0: No, they okay. were founded by a guy a guy that is called uh Monsignor Valencia Cano. He was uh, known like the wait a second, I'm going to search a word. <laughs> uh he's called G um Bishop The Red Bishop of Colombia.
2: Okay.
0: And he's uh, he's part of the history of Colombia as a revolutionary part of the of the um, of the church, of the Catholic Church because he was trying to make uh, evangelization and missions a work that was with community and based on the poverty, but not as based on the uh, brainwash work that had been made in other um, works of the the church. So he started training them, Usemi, uh, that is a group of girls from Medellin that were trying to search like a new way of working with people. Uh, They were not uh, identified with the the traditional, um, like uh, main um, roles of the woman. They were not horse, they were not uh, um, religious, but they were not also uh, women that wanted to be married with someone. They were like free women and they want, wanted to work with people. So they, they get to know uh, the bishop, the red bishop, and he started um, training them to work with society, to work with people. So they start working with him in Buenaventura. Uh, they also worked in Chiapas in Mexico, and um, then they start working in, in La Sierra. In La Sierra, they start with an education program that was based in the culture of indigenous people, not in the religion or in the Catholic uh, thoughts. And they start uh, traducing things and start to um how do you say that like writing the indigenous language um after they start to work with political issues that they were fighting like uh their territory their education their language um and they were like a, a little um piedra nel zapato
2: uh, uh, they were, uh, yes, uh, 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 a stone in the, in the shoe.
0: Yes, they were the stone in the shoe from the, from the church because they were really different of every mission in La Sierra. And they were making like um, all the things that they didn't want, like like Iglesia didn't want them to make. They were changing society so that's why we find it like really interesting they were Colombian but uh, they were making a work that was never seen in Colombia Mm -hmm.
2: this is truly fascinating I'm I'm starting from the beginning here and I'm learning now from you but this you know head bishop as you say this is truly revolutionary as you uh, again uh, that it's it's a definite break from what we expect the Catholic Church to be doing. You know, we go all the way back to 1492, and, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't have the best reputation in this part of the world, let's say. There is a, a, I think the the lightest way of putting it is it's just a a slant on uh, absolute cruelty towards native uh, populations. And then you've got this, usemi these ladies as you say las señoritas who don't want to be married and don't want to have children but they do want to participate making a change i mean these sound like early feminists they sound like people who are very strong and so i need to start with the kind of question here is and i don't know which one of you can answer it is why did why did the bishop Choose, or why did they choose La Sierra and La Sierra Nevada and this area to to go? And and what I like, what I, what you are explaining to me is that the the these this group went there, and it wasn't to try and let's say pull. And I'm putting this as a sort of a quotation: pull the poor indigenous people out of poverty and and. Their, Undeveloped lifestyles it was to find i can see this as finding a common ground for religion amongst and within their culture i don't know do you you guys want to make a comment on this
0: um Leo? yes, like there's a a really interesting part in your question that is like why Usemi did arrive to la Sierra uh, A great part of north of Colombia was dominated by a mission that was called La Misión Capuchina. They were a mission that is really traditional, like even medieval, maybe. Like they were trying always to um, punish people because of thinking in a different way. And they had a lot of people to evangelize. So they were not, not enough men for them. They started searching other missions, and they arrived to Usemi. So they were called by their enemies. <laughs> and they didn't know that Usemi was that revolutionary. So they called them. They thought there, there was like a little uh, girly group of women that wanted to try to work with community and that they were going to reproduce the same system but there they had a really big surprise when they started like uh for example prohibiting the indigenous people to read the bible Uh usemi didn't want uh the native people to change their culture they wanted to understand the culture, so to uh, search God in each people without modifying them. Um, so it was a really different way of seeing religion. Um, there is a thing that is called Concilio Vaticano II. I don't know how it's called. Vatican
2: or something. <laughs> Conciliation.
0: Yes. That it was really a revolutionary way of uh, changing of the of the main church of the of the Catholic uh, religion that was um, made after USEMI started working and in that in that council they understood religion in a different way they start saying like we have to respect people we have to work with poor people and Usemi, 20 years before, had already uh, made the change. So um, they were like called, with, called by the bad guys, then they made the revolution and then they take out the, the bad guys guys of this area. Of this, area.
2: this is a really, really interesting because, you know, as you say, the Arawak, Arawako people, and then there's different... Uh, uh, different families within that I guess the Tyrona, the Kogi uh, and beyond I guess the Canquamo because they're in the same area um, we and so well. on so I mean maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like to go up uh, and maybe Danielle, you have some of the uh, answers or the experiences uh, what it was like to go up there and uh you know meet with people and find people who remembered the Usemi group uh maybe spending time with them because if they were there in the nineteen sixties seventies and eighties it's you know, I remember the nineteen eighties but <laughs> uh, you know there, there aren't that many people up there in the mountains i don't think that remember all the way back.
3: Well, what um, my partners from the documentary have told me about this experience is that there is, uh, there's a lot of respect towards Usemi, And a lot of people remember them and they have it in a really good concept. In the concept that they were caring, they were really, really, really loving, they really managed to, to teach and to uh, the culture around uh, Arwako and Kogis. And, well, most of them, uh, of the Arwako people that talked about Usemi always said something like they were, my, my father knew them, you know, or my mother, and, like the generation before. So I think that's really important because the reason why we got to this story was actually because people were talking about Usemi. Uh, still nowadays, remembering them and their work there it's it's tangible in, in the Sierra in la sierra and i think I think that Usemi did a really really important job. I think that it, probably things would not be the same if it was not if it was not for the work of husemi uh they actually like Daniela said, they eventually took care of them towards the capuch cappuccino missions that were actually destroying the culture. So I mean you can still I think I haven't gone there I have not gone there uh, to the Sierra, but uh I think that what I have, what I have been told is that it seems like a timeless place. Uh where culture still there, you can perceive uh Aruaco culture Uh, It's it's a culture that's been preserved really well through time, decades. Worth uh, thinking. I mean, that's probably it, Daniela. You have maybe something to share about it,
2: Daniela. So your time, your time when you went up into the Sierra, were you able to meet people who remembered the Yosemite? Well, when I went to the
0: Sierra, I didn't know Yosemite history, but I did live like uh, the experience of being a woman in a society that is really uh, different and that does, does uh, still think that women and men are really different. So um, getting up there first is really difficult because uh, the last main um, main way to go, go up there is like, it can be like one day a walk to get to the main town um that have access to cars so you have to walk a lot to arrive there and um there is no light there there is no uh like water from like good water there everything is really different and the way they they used to um, interact with women uh, Is not that cool <laughs> because they start like searching men for uh, talk. Maybe if you are trying to talk with them, they're going to ignore you because you're a woman. So that time I went there, I was thinking it's going to be really, really difficult to work with them because I have to be really patient and have to be really comprehensive not to take it personal. Uh, and then uh, we find we we found out Yusemi uh, history and we start to understand that maybe being a woman and working in la sierra is possible um so in that time i didn't knew that uh, indigenous people recognized yusemi but uh, i was able to understand the difficulties of being a woman
2: there. Mm. But as you said, I mean you went there with a real let's say worry and yet it was okay. I mean it was challenging, but because of the arrival of Yusami, things had been improved for you years before.
0: Well, main, mainly I think that it have improved from for the people because nowadays they have an uh, educational system based in their culture. They don't have uh, the cappuccinos in the territory. They can have the limits, a clear limit between the resguardo, that is like the main territory that is um, protected for indigenous people and other territories. Uh, and this, in some way, has been uh, a possibility because of USEMI. Um, but, of course, there's a lot of things that have to be improved. Um, there is still a really big um, like, uh, distance between the city life and La Sierra life, because they don't have access to... Um, not all the towns have access to education. not all the people have access to health um they don't have access to the to the market so if they need like rice, they have to walk like three days to buy it in the nearest place. It's not a easy life over
2: there, that's yeah, that's hard. I mean that, obviously. But I mean, you get the feeling and I've only been uh I've only been up there a couple of times, but not obviously as as deep as as, as you've gone into these places. Um but you know, the, the, these people, these ancient people, ancient farms, they kind of just want to be left alone to 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 live their lives, right? And and uh I mean, you, you correct me. I want to hear all of your experiences because, I mean, I've only been into the sort of low areas of, of, of the Sierra and, of course, into, you know, way back in the day as a backpacker, back in the, I know, around 2000 or 1999, I, I hiked the, the, the Lost City. So that's my only real knowledge, the Sierra Perdida. So maybe you guys could tell me just a little bit more about i don't know the reception the culture uh you know how do they see you as well going up there to film uh because i'm sure they don't want to feel like uh you know they're in a fishbowl you know with everyone looking at them it, 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 it has to be something else sure
3: yeah i mean uh they are i mean they don't let anyone like film them or photograph them or Go up there. I think that it's a process that can last years, and I think that for them, we're always going to be like city people, you know. But I think that their their way of viewing life and understanding life uh, can make them feel empathy towards certain people and feel them, feel their energy, feel feel their spirit. And they can I think they they make con- uh, like uh con- consensus. I mean they talk within them, they take decisions in group. And I think that most of the times when when my uh Santiago and Juan Sebastian were, were there filming, they were not allowed to film uh like whatever they wanted. Uh they had to uh, wait a little bit, so they are, are Waco people. Uh, will deliver and will make a decision about what they can film, when they can film.
2: So, Daniel, I mean, we were talking about, and, you know, when we talk about Las Senoritas, and we were talking about how you have to behave really when you go up to this, it's a sacred area. Um, you know, it belongs to other people despite being within the frontiers of Colombia. But uh, it's sacred. It's something else. And, and you know, the, the, the indigenous people and the families up there, they have a different concept of time and the world and their cosmovision on, on everything is different. So filming and being subject to uh, budgets <laughs> and uh, time restraints And things like that has to be a real challenge. I mean, it because you can't just go in and shove your camera at whatever interests you. There are serious rules.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that you have to behave really with a lot of respect, with a lot of touch, really, really sensitive towards them, their culture, and I think that as a filmmaker, you have to be. A lot, very patient, very, very patient. I think that they can tell when you are like a guy looking for something like a product, like somehow you want to go there, shoot, and then go to your house with beautiful pictures and great stuff material, and like you don't care about them. I think that they can tell that. I think that the opportunity that they gave us to film there, uh, to be with the community was because they actually felt the good intentions that uh, Santiago and Juan Sebastián had when they were filming. They, they are really sensitive guys. They have worked with indigenous communities before. Uh, Juan Sebastián has six years going off and, on, on and off to the Sierra, and Santiago has worked with temperas uh, uh, community. So I think that they have what it takes to make a connection towards uh, Arhuacu and Kogis. So, I mean, I think that this is a challenge for filmmakers, but this is also a way of giving a shape to the film. Like it's not It's not like making uh, other type of documentaries. This documentary uh like it, it, it looks like it, it looks this way, it feels this way, it, it it's been heard this way because of these types of rules that Arwako people has. This is the a way like almost the Arawako people are directing the film because they are the ones that in the end decide what you can shoot where you can stand, uh, what you can show. These kinds of challenges are, are are the core of the film, are the heart of the film. And as, you know, a lot of filmmakers in the past have, have, have has, has said, uh, Chris Marker, Werner Herzog, for example, that these sort of challenges are the ones that make you as a, filmmaker, as a filmmaker get creative like really you have to search for the for for the image you have to search for the time you have to give it perfection to the shot and it's not like you can shoot everything it's not like you can like have hours and hours and hours and hours of shooting and of material you have to be really selective you have to have a keen eye a keen ear you have to listen a lot, and I think that this type of experience and the rules that our Waco people have there are are something that are, are a great experience for a filmmaker, for an artist uh, that's working there with them.
2: That Juan Sebastian has all of that experience coming up uh, is is just makes it all very different. So, yeah. so. Um, <laughs> it it makes a difference. And, you know, there's a different type of uh, sensibility towards filmmaking. And you, I mean, you spoke very much uh, as someone who knows what he's doing. The challenges, and you said you quoted Herzog and everything else, Um, but you spoke of Herzog and you spoke of others. And I can understand that. It's, it's, It's the challenges that you are presented with and how you, you know, you let's say accommodate them is it makes, makes something special. Uh, I, I want to go back to the Sierra itself. And as I know now that Daniela was up in the Sierra um, and you had your moments of when you were welcome and other moments when you were made to feel very aware that you were a woman up there, uh, you know, a woman, uh, you know, and you're 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 searching for something I bet you have some anecdotes about your experiences, uh, you know, some stories that you could possibly share with us, either happy ones or not so happy ones, or just ones that maybe we'd be interested in hearing because it's so very different to anything that we really know.
0: Well, I have a lot of like moments that have been really uh, significant for me in La Sierra. There is a family up there that is like, our family because they have been working with Juan Sebastián for more than five years and they really care about him. So when he takes people with him over there, they start to make us part of the family. And it's really, really special because we can get to know really well the community, their practices, their way of living each day. Um, and I remember that one day that it was really interesting, like living after uh, that moment was the day that I have the menstruation. Yes. And I use the cup, like the menstrual cup. So I was uh, cleaning it and a, a, a girl was asking me, like, "Was what is that? Why does you put that in your body i like she didn't understand what i was doing and i was trying to explain to her that it was a way of protecting me from uh, and and she was really really um amazed because of that technology and she told me that they only use like a cotton and that the relationship with that is really different because they get uh, closed like um, in quarantine for like six days each month because they don't have the facilities for um, taking care of themselves those days. So it was one of the most uh, weird things I lived up there. Maybe the most uh, weird thing up there uh, I think that other other um, great experiences up there is to uh, play with with the kids. the kids are really interested in in the in the people that is not of their community because they all the Araku people are in white clothes, with their traditional way of, of dressing, and when you get up there with your like, dresses, they look at you like, "I don't understand who is that person. Why does she wear that clothes?" And they are really eh, the kids are really natural approaching to us asking us questions taking like the camera uh the cell phone the books like asking things and one of them is a really beautiful girl she's called Jinga, and she's really really intelligent and she's like 13 years old but she have never been in school but one day she asked me to uh teach her to write and i only went there like four days, eight days. I don't know. It was less than a week. And I was trying to teach her how to write. But I, I was thinking myself, like, she's going to be able to take the pen, when she, but she's not going to be able to write. It's not, there's not not enough time. But she was able to write her name, the name of his father and his brother in a day. And I was like, really it was not possible for me, like in the developmental time of kids, it takes a lot of time and she she was, I don't know, like really, really intelligent. And she's like um, a little sister for us, even though I have not been that much time with her, but she used to be like really close to us. And nowadays she wants to come to Bogota. And like know the big city, so we are waiting for that moment to happen. Quite a
2: quite a big change, uh, quite mm. a big step. Big Do you think? And I just quickly—I mean—you've given me an idea. And uh, I have children, and you know, my oldest son is—he knows how to write and and read, and but he's six and has been through school and everything else, and it's a process. But do you think that she was so fast because of the lack of external distractions, you know, let's say TV, cell phones, that there's, she could just channel all of her attention to the one thing with you. Had you ever thought that you might be exotic in this situation as well?
0: Of course I'm exotic ex, super exotic for her. Like a weird thing that moves, and she doesn't understand if I'm um, like a person or, or other thing, because she is really amazed with new things. But even though I think that it was part of the main uh, reasons why she was like really paying me attention and not like playing with the cell phone or like in Instagram, because they don't have that. Um, Maybe it's because she's really, really, really interested in education. And that's a little bit sad because uh, that's the main problem of their struggles. That even though they are protecting their their land, they are living in a way that is between abandonment and the achievement of their struggles for territory. Because... Uh, they do want to have education, but an, an education that is made by them. So what happened is like okay, we give uh the resources the resources to some leaders that do not know how to uh use that resources and you have to get up to um Make a an school and be able to like create a pensum, and it's not that easy. So um, I think that in a way, the struggles for territory here in Colombia are a good um, way of washing their hands Of the government and saying, "Okay, um, I'm not invited there, so I'm not going to do anything more to uh, help them to arrive to a good education." Uh, So she had to, um, she had to, uh, how do you say that? Wait, she had to take advantage of that moment as an unique moment in her life
2: and that's kind of sad my thing uh, it's a fascinating i uh, you know this concept of being okay so yeah there's money for the schools you've got to build your own school and i can just imagine the government saying oh this is what we do for grades 1 to 5 and just saying this is what you have to learn um, but let's 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 move on and we you know we we'll start closing this down and uh, but daniel uh, we mentioned before that the, the usami and these are the key, the, the, you know, one of the key things. They were present in the nineteen sixties, seventies, and eighties, and and then it ended in the after the nineteen eighties. There was no more usami uh, projects in the Sierra. Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, after that, uh, well, what happened was that somehow uh, the indigenous people one, I mean, after all these years of teaching by Usemi, our people decided that it was now time for them to be by themselves. It's not like they, I, I mean, I'm not actually really sure of the details, but the way I see it, it's like Usemi taught so much to our people that the ultimate teaching was be alone. You don't need us. You know, like I think that actually Useni did understand the situation, and they went uh, away from there. But uh, what I also think happened was that near the eighty, near the uh, the early eighties in the Sierra, there was a conflict going on there. Guerrilla, uh, guerrillas. And this, I think, this kind of stuff was really, really something really important there. And I think that uh, it, it, it's something that affected a lot to the Usemi missions uh, around there. I think that the, the the context was not the best for Usemi to keep on developing developing their work. But uh, I think that that is what happened. Actually, I mean
2: that 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 it it might be that they you know came to the end of of their cycle and if if you know the a revolutionary catholic entity sees the end and can go it's 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 an amazing feat you know you expect because you sort of imagine them as missionaries but they're very different this is not This is not a missionary as, you know, like the film from the 1980s, the mission and things like that. This is not. uh, So the two sides coming together, obviously the conflict, we know the Sierra was, uh, has been, and and in in various parts, continues to be very affected by the conflict and, uh, and, and so on. And then, of course, the end of the Usemi kind of project, finding its end, having taught the people, And now the people themselves can take the project forward, which is of course, is a success story for any project. Uh, You know, it's not a a cycle of always waiting for the next uh, do-gooder to come along, you know?
3: Yeah, well, I think it was a complex phenomenon what happened there. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was just like semi find the end of the cycle. I think that a lot of things happened towards the end of Usemi there. Uh, there's, there's some things that happened around there. There was, somehow, like, there was a plane that crashed and some of the Usemi girls died there. They didn't know if it was sabotage or somehow. Uh, we also, I mean, I think that not all the Atuwako people agreed on Usemi being there. We have to understand that this community very organic, has a lot of points of view as well. There is a lot of, uh, I mean, our Waco people are, as any people, if you have 10 people, maybe five think one thing, two other think one other thing, three think another thing. So I think that the semi phenomenon was at the end of the cycle uh, converging into a lot of points of view, complexity, Uh, maybe not all of the... Maybe it was not like black and white. It was really gray. So I think that part of the challenges of this documentary is exploring and trying to uh, figure out what actually could have happened at the end of the cycle, Uh, trying to explain and to show um, this phenomenon that was really complex. So your question is actually a question that the film is trying to solve, and it it, it doesn't have a simple answer. I think that uh, it takes uh, analysis, investigation, and a lot of thinking uh, about it, because it, there's a lot of things going on there,
0: I think. What Daniel says is true, like uh, to the extent that they worked so that the indigenous people could continue with their project, so they taught them to be teachers, nurses, and even how to pull feet because they had no uh people to make their uh, their teeth held, so they helped them to be like an autonomous, but when at the end of their work in, in La Sierra, they helped them to remove the Capuchin missionaries of the territory um, to the extent that the indigenous people who were more traditional fought with them for the departure of the Capuchins. But those who had already been evangelized said that if one mission have to go, then they have to leave everyone like Usemi and the Cappuccinos and everyone in in a way that they were forced to leave. But one of them stayed there living until she died. Uh, And she was even buried as a mamu that is like the great spiritual leader of the community because she was really important for them and she was really respectful with them. She was like, um, she was the one that All Usemi thing was too much traditional for being true because everything that a leader said, she obeyed, no matter what was that. So uh, she she had a really good uh, knowledge of the community and of the cosmovision of Ariwako people and Kogi people. In a way that she arrived to be like a leader for the native uh
2: community that's that's no small feat i mean that's an incredible opportunity and an incredible uh high praise for someone to be accepted totally and therefore an you know exalted in a community such as that i think unfortunately i mean we could talk forever but we don't have enough time uh, unfortunately but i have to ask you both when will we be able to see las señoritas uh and is there a website that we can check out and and uh, stay uh, informed
0: yes we think that well the uh Fa- the 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 documentary is going to be even more uh, fast if people up, if people help us. <laughs> but I th- the the main plan I think is to have it uh, at twenty twenty
2: three.
0: Twenty twenty three. Uh-huh. And uh, we hope that this year we are going to f- to finish the post production. We have um, our main account on Instagram, that is Las Senoritas Documental. I'll write it in the chat after. And also we have a a crowdfunding page that is in Baki, Colombia. Um, So if you want to help us, you have to go to Baki and and just do your your appreciation. I don't know how to say that.
2: Yeah, your donation. Donation. <laughs> well, listen, Daniel, Daniel Velasquez, and Daniela Rocha. Thank you so much for your time and explaining a little bit about the complexities of of Usemi and the Sierra and the time you spent and this. Obviously, this project that has consumed your lives for the most recent past, uh, we will send people to check out your Instagram, Las Señoritas Documental, and I've got the link now for the Vaki, which is the crowdfunding page. I'll put that up on our Facebook page and everything else, and, and we'll, uh, well, we will stay tuned for when the documentary comes out in 2023 because it will because we have to be positive towards these things you know it will come out and you will have it on in i don't know some cine arte and and then and then cine colombia will come and take it and then it will go to international (laughs) festivals and then you know big investors will give you lots of money for the next one (laughs) that's what it you know we want it to be positive and we want this. so listen thank you so much for your time and i wish you all all of you and the team and juan sebastian and everyone all the best in this next and it's it's the tough period now getting it finished and getting it out right so good luck with the rest and thank you for being on the columbia calling podcast thank you you very much throw it all over social media so listen Thank you again. Uh, this has been episode 403 of the Columbia Calling podcast. I know you've enjoyed this episode, even with my children in the background. Uh, <laughs> I guess it adds a little bit of ambience. But uh, anyway, don't forget to tune in next week when we'll have more people talking something Columbia, Columbia related. <laughs>